you would, take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12. I want to say thank you, Jerry and Peyton and Aaron for filling in while Larry is gone. If you would, remember, be praying for Larry. He is in Mexico right now as we speak um, in prison. No, he didn't get arrested, but he is sharing the gospel with people in prison in Mexico. So pray for him, if you would, as he's sharing the gospel, that there would be genuine conversions, that the Lord would use him, and then that Larry would have the strength and energy uh, to keep sharing the gospel because he was up here all week with me uh, painting and laboring right before he left, and, and we want to make sure that he's not too exhausted and that the Lord is using him to save uh, many people in Mexico. Also be praying for Doug and Brian. They're gone today as well. Um, we're flying solo this morning, but they are in New Mexico at a conference. Pray for their encouragement that they would be refreshed and built up and when they return able to minister more effectively. Luke chapter 12. We come to verse 35 where Jesus is trying to convince the disciples. and In fact, it's not really convince. He's instructing his disciples, his followers to have a new perspective on life. To not live in the way of the world, but to be different because of the gospel and because we are now new citizens of a new kingdom. We continue that theme in a different format, in a different way this morning in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Let me first begin by stating the obvious that although it's obvious, needs to be stated and, and needs to be... Uh, a reminder for many of us. That reminder is, some of you are experiencing right now and know all too well, it is that few things in our lives are certain. Certainty is a luxury in many regards, right? Most things of our lives are uncertain. Our life itself is uncertain. And I don't just mean the experience of life, the, the walk of life, Although that statement would be true in that regard, that around every corner as we walk through this life, we find uncertainty. But I even mean the, the life that we have itself, the breath that is in our lungs, is not a certainty. At any moment, as Jesus said in verse 20 of Luke chapter 12, at any moment your soul may be required of you. Your, your next breath is not your guarantee. It is not a certainty. The harsh reality of the curse of sin that Adam and Eve committed in Genesis 3 and, and the curse that God placed upon humanity because of that death, that harsh reality is that it may suddenly come upon us at any moment. My grandmother, who I loved very dearly, uh, was in great shape, great health, and in a span of a few hours went to be with her Lord. Life itself is not a certainty. Many other things of, of this life, of our existence here on earth, are not certain for us. Your family, although a very good thing, something you love, should love, people you love, are not a certainty for you. The reality of the world we live in, this unstable existence of ours because of sin, uh, is that your family may let you down. Your family may make choices that hurt you. Your family may make choices that you disapprove of they are not a certainty in your life 
We look at other even natural things of creation that God has put in place and we can come to the conclusion that even technically those things aren't certain. We're not promised that there will be a tomorrow. We're promised there's a right now. So certainty is a luxury. Most things that we experience are uncertain. In fact, we have to say the only things that are certain in this world and in our lives are the things that God has promised to be certain, right? Things like heaven. Whether you want to agree to that or not, or believe it or not, heaven is a certainty. God has established it. God has promised it. It is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is a certainty. Equally as true, hell is a certainty. If you don't want to think of a loving God punishing people to an eternity in hell, that, that doesn't matter. Hell is a reality. It is as certain as you are. Salvation is a certainty. When God promises to save, He saves for eternity to the utmost. Judgment is a certainty. And the Bible says that we will all stand and give an account to God and He will be the ultimate and final judge. That is a promise. That is a certainty. Well, as we come to Luke 12, we find one other thing that is as certain as the existence of God Himself. It is the return of Christ to this world. Our Lord and Savior is very much alive. And since He is alive, He has promised and declared He will come back. He will return to the earth. And He'll return in a vastly different fashion than when He first came. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us Christ came in, in humility. He came and humbled Himself to the form of humanity. And, and that He did. He humbled Himself to the birth of a baby. He humbled Himself to the death of a cross. He humbled Himself to experience this world and exist in this creation just as you and I do. But when He comes back, it's going to be a vastly different existence. It won't be in humility. He'll come back in victory. He'll come back in triumph. He'll come back in glory and in power and with authority. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. Often referring to it as a great and a glorious day. A day of final victory. Not just a victory. A final victory. Revelation chapter 12. John gets this vision and reports it to us in Revelation Chapter 19, not chapter 12. In chapter 19, verse 11, John reports this. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's a vastly different coming of Christ than the first time he came right. He came to extend mercy and grace and compassion and love and forgiveness and redemption from sin. But on the second coming, He comes and He judges and makes war. Verse 12, John says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. Church, if you are not covered in Christ's blood, then when He comes, He will be covered in yours. 
This is a warrior in his second coming. A glorious, authoritative warrior who will declare victory over all his enemies. Over and against all ungodliness and all wickedness. This Jesus that we try to imagine in our hearts and our minds and and this Jesus that the world wants to imagine as this tolerant and passive and quiet figure is not how Revelation 19 describes him when he comes back. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Fury flows from him. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He may have come in humility his first time. Make no mistake, he comes in declaration his second time. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Jesus. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What a vastly different depiction of Christ than what we often want to think about. That is no longer the child in the manger. That's the warrior, king of kings, lord of lords who comes and in a moment and in an instant with complete certainty declares victory over evil. And the world will be covered with the blood of the wicked. And he will stand at last victorious. In fact, Psalm chapter 1, at the end of that psalm says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's not just that the wicked will perish. In that day, when the Lord returns, the very way of wickedness will perish. All evil will be wiped out when this king comes back. And that church is a certainty for us. You see, the Lord returns in victory, but for some, the harsh reality is that it may be a very terrible day for them. The Bible often will refer to the day of the Lord as not only the great and glorious day, but the great and terrible day for those who are found unprepared. You see, for us, it will be a day of joy, it will be a day of delight. 
Because in that moment, we are caught up to be with our Savior and sin will be no more for us. We're no longer captive. We're no longer in these wicked bodies. We're no longer decaying in our own sin. Our souls are going to be set free and liberated and we're going to be clothed in white. We're going to be in the army of the Lord, riding on white horses with Him. We're going to enjoy His presence. For us, it'll be a glorious day. That's why John ends the book of Revelation, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. Peter even tells us, hasten the day of the Lord. But for some, it will be a vastly different day full of terror and fury and wrath and destruction. And it is a certainty. Certainty. It will be in that moment, church, when the age of mercy will come to an abrupt end. And all of those who belong to Christ will be caught up with Him and those who have rejected Christ will be ushered into their condemnation. And when the age of mercy comes to an end, there will be no second chances. No reset. No do-over. Oh, if you toy with Christ and you toy with Christianity and you toy with having saving faith and you think you can straddle the fence, let me warn you with severe urgency right now, you may not be able to ride the fence much longer. Because one day, in a single moment, the age of mercy will come to an end. And it will be the age of condemnation. In that day, church, it will be permanent and eternal what the King of Kings does. The Lord is coming back. And for those of us who are covered in His blood, it will be a glorious day. And we look forward to it with complete joy. But if you are not covered in the blood of Christ, and if you do not have saving faith, if you have not been born again, it is a frightening day for you indeed. And not a day that you can toy with by any means. Jesus will come. And He will Himself divide those who are with Him and those who are against Him and those found to be against Him will be punished permanently and eternally. Well, as you can imagine, with an event of that magnitude, God has much to say about it, doesn't He? He's not just going to leave it up to us to figure it out when it comes about. It's going to happen quickly and it's going to happen in a moment and God would have us be prepared. God says a lot throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament about the day of the Lord and when Christ is coming back and what we need to do to be ready. He would have us know everything we can and everything we need to know about the awesome truths of that event. And He would have us to hold on to the assurance of salvation very tightly to be prepared for a day, that day. Well, I have to ask the question right now. This is the question we must address and answer this morning. Are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready for such a day? Because the Lord's return is certain. And there will only be two results for you. One of two. Joy or terror. Are you ready? If you come to Luke chapter 12 verse 35. The ESV Bible has this heading. Your Bible may have a similar heading. But it says you must be ready. And that heading is very accurate. You must be ready. Christ would have you ready. We would have you ready. I would have you ready. 
Because the day of the Lord is coming. And we say with John, come quickly, Lord. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Let's read through this text of what Jesus has to say about this. And our attitude towards it. We'll come back and attempt to walk through it. Verse 35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said to him, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find, do, find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Be ready, we must be indeed. That's the first point we want to look at. Humanity is called to be ready. Verses 35 through 40. We are called to be ready. Not just Christians, most certainly Christians, but also the whole world. We are called to be ready. What does it mean to be ready? There was a popular TV show on a few years ago. may still be on. I don't know. I don't watch it. It was called Doomsday Preppers. Is that what it means to be ready? Digging bunkers in your backyard and storing up rice and canned goods and waiting, trying to survive the apocalypse. Is, is that what readiness is? No, that's not what God means by being ready. Does it mean idle waiting and watching? I sit back in my recliner in my living room and I... Just wait because I know the Lord's coming. It's a certainty, so I'm going to wait and watch for His coming. That's certainly not what He means. What about putting a Christian spin on it? Does being ready mean that we focus all of our efforts, all of our attention, and all of our teaching on the end times and the apocalypse? No. That's not what readiness is either. Readiness is salvation. First and foremost. It is believing the gospel and placing your faith in Christ. That is the ultimate step of being ready. 
Are you born again? Are you covered in the blood of Jesus? Do you trust in Him and Him alone for salvation? Have you tasted His grace and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Are you convicted of sin? Not just guilty and shameful, but convicted of sin and, and, and discovering victory and seeing sanctification work out in your life. Are you saved? That's what it means to be ready. But Christ doesn't limit it to just that. He also says part of the fruit of salvation is being ready. Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in righteousness? Are you being conformed more and more to the image of Christ? Because that's perseverance. And that's sanctification. And that's being ready. That's why Paul and other writers of the New Testament would often say, continue in the faith. Hold fast to that which was given to you. The gospel. Don't neglect your salvation. Being ready does not just mean, although that's most important, being born again it also means continuing in your salvation continuing in sanctification i'm not saying you can lose your salvation but scripture uses this terminology perseverance are you persevering in the faith because that is a mark of a born again christian see readiness preparedness for the coming of christ is a mark of christianity Scripture regularly exhorts us to hold fast and be ready. Our problem is that we are distracted, aren't we? And we're frequently unconcerned about the second coming of Christ. We don't think about it often. We rarely think about it. And we even more rarely live in light of the coming of Christ. Are you making your decisions and Making your choices based on the fact that Christ may return at any moment? Are you interacting with your family members and your co-workers and your friends and your neighbors as if Christ might return at any moment? We rarely live in light of eternity. We rarely live in light of the day of the Lord. That's readiness, church. That's what it means to possess this salvation that makes you ready. It's a salvation that is so encompassing and so transforming and so uh, consuming of every area of our life that it dictates everything about us. And that now we live in light of the kingdom. That's the whole context of Luke chapter 12. If you remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, don't be caught up in the abundance of your possessions. Don't be like the rest of the world. And then he says, trust God. Don't even be caught up in the necessary things of life. Worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. God's going to provide. Instead, he says, be people who are focused on the kingdom. People who live in light of eternity. He's continuing that theme in verse 35, saying, live in light of my second coming. When we, when we view our existence in the light of Christ's return and understand what Christ's return entails, Revelation 19, this victorious warrior, when we understand that and live in light of that, it changes how we function. Of course I understand now. If I'm living in light of Christ's return, I don't need to be worried about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to wear. God will provide. If I'm living in light of Christ's return, then it is absolute absurdity to be concerned about my bank account, my nicest car, my newest house, my newest this, that, or the other. 
The abundance of possessions don't matter in light of Christ's return. This is the context Jesus is teaching in. And he's saying, live in light of me coming back. You must be ready. It's a clear instruction, church. Clear. I want you to look at verse 35 and 36 and notice the language. This is the point of the passage. When you're studying a text of Scripture, we, we often need to find out the point of the passage. Every text has a singular point. There may be multiple lessons to learn through a passage, but every passage has an original intent, singular point that the author and communicator is trying to get across. Verse 35 and 36 are the point of this passage. Everything else points back to it. Everything else builds off of these two verses. And it's clear language that Jesus is using using here. It's action-oriented language. Nothing of our being ready for Christ's return as Christians, nothing of that is passive. It's all action-oriented. The first one, first phrase there, verse 35, stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action. Action means activity. As in the sense of being ready for war, being ready for work, it implies, and and your Bible may even have uh, the footnote here, the Greek implies, gird up your loins. Or literally, for the context, take up your robe and tuck it in your belt so that you can run, so that you can work, so that you can be useful. That's what Christ is saying in that language right there, that phrase. Be able to move. Be able to be active. Be doing the work that makes you ready. Then he also uses this word stay. It means being in a constant state of readiness. Part of navigating the Christian life is that all of these these things apply to us without us being removed from the world. We still live in the world. We still live in this life. We're not to be idly waiting by. That's not what readiness is. We are to be actively engaged in the world. And as we're being actively engaged, we're to be in a constant state of readiness. So stay addressed for action. And all that you're doing, be ready. The second phrase, he says, keep your lamps burning. Don't just be ready in in action, in your deeds, in all of areas of life, but keep your lamps burning. Light is often a symbol for knowledge and revelation in Scripture. Often a symbol for understanding. Christ is exhorting us, if you want to be ready, continue walking in the light. Have a firm grip on the truth. Understand who God is. Know God and know the Gospel and live according to His Scriptures. Cling tightly to them. Diligently guard that which helps you to know God. Avoid myth. Hold fast to the Gospel. That's why Paul would be so avid to the Galatians in chapter 1. I am astounded, he says, that you have turned away from the Gospel to another kind of teaching. Christ says, if you want to be ready, hold tightly your truth. Hold tightly the truth of Scripture, the Gospel, and walk according to the light of the Word and the light of the Gospel. Don't be driven away. 
into false knowledge. Well, thirdly, and I'll sum, summarize verse 6, he says, wait for your master. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and wait for your master. And that verse, verse 36, the master's gone to a wedding feast. And in this day and age, weddings aren't anything like what our wedding ceremonies and celebrations are. They would last for days, full week, and they had no formal start or finish. They were just community-wide, long celebrations, day and evening long. Lots of food, lots of drinks, lots of dancing, lots of celebrating. So the master could be gone for any length of time and he could return at any moment. It's, it's a wonderful illustration by Jesus. It's not a passive statement when he says, wait for your master to come home. It's an active watchfulness. Be watching for the master to come home. So that as soon as he knocks, at once, you can open the gates and everything is ready and prepared for him. You're ready to serve. You're ready to work. You know what he wants and what he expects. Be watchful. Have your eyes peeled and let your heart be longing for his return. Don't be idle. Don't be unprepared. Be actively watchful. Those three things are all prerequisites to being ready when the Lord comes. Staying dressed for action, keeping your lamps burning, sticking to the truth, being watchful. Which means that readiness is not idle waiting or doomsday prepping. It is in fact a heart and lifestyle of watchfulness in both truth and obedience. What does it mean to be ready? It means to watch for the coming of Christ in truth and in obedience. That is a heart condition and that is a lifestyle. Possess the saving faith that gives you a longing for Christ to come back. Be saved and have the salvation that makes you ready in watchfulness, makes you ready in truth, and that makes you ready in obedience. It's that salvation that Christians hold on to. It's that salvation that makes us Christian. It's that salvation that God Himself extends. And it makes us watchful in all situations. Watchful because we don't want to be caught in an uncompromising position when our Lord returns. We don't want to be found in sin when Christ comes back. We don't want to be caught off guard or unprepared. It's that kind of salvation that gives us a, a longing for the truth of God. It helps us ward off being led astray. It's a salvation that makes us want to know who the Lord is and know what the Lord's will is and reject any false Christ that may come along. It's the kind of salvation that makes John chapter 10 true. The sheep know my voice. It's that kind of salvation that keeps us dressed for action with urgency to share the gospel. The gospel being on our lips at all times, sharing and exhorting the people around us, working diligently to proclaim the message. Of salvation in Jesus. And I say working deliberately. It's not easy to stay dressed for action. Work at it. That's what readiness looks like. 
A life that belongs to Christ and a life that is increasingly lived in Christ's likeness by the grace and mercy of God. I want you to notice verse 37 real quickly. Getting into this bad habit of not being able to finish passages. Verse 37. We see how, how seriously God takes being ready. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. He likens it to being awake. In verse 38, he says, The master may come in the second watch or the third watch of the night. It just simply means late, late night, past midnight. And he's going to be so excited in verse 37 when he finds them awake that he himself will do something that no earthly master would ever do. He will serve his servants. It's a wonderful truth. Jesus will be so thrilled and He so desires when He finds His children awake and ready that He will serve them. I say to you, Jesus says in verse 37, He will dress Himself for service and have His servants recline at table and He will come and serve them. Offer them food and offer them drink and comfort and relaxation. God so desires us to be ready, so desires us to be prepared, so desires us to be awake, that He will lavish goodness on us when He comes. If God comes and finds you prepared, you will be covered in joy and in blessing. If God comes and He finds you believing the Gospel, Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And living according to His Word to the best of your ability. He will lavish you with goodness. There is no excuse nor reason to be unprepared. Whether the Master comes in the second or third watch. Blessings await those who are prepared. Interestingly, Jesus interrupts this parable, this teaching, in verse 39. And He interrupts it with a very bold statement. Verse 39, He says, But know this, it's an emphatic statement, authoritative statement, and it's a warning statement. It's meant to interrupt. It's meant to get their attention. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. The language really literally means the thief digging through the mud brick walls, sneaking in to rob the owner. The Lord interestingly here likens his return to a thief coming. The first part, he likens it to the master coming home. And in this verse, he says... It's actually like the master being caught off guard and a thief coming. And I think it's because of this reason. For some people, Jesus' second coming will not be like the joy of the master coming home. It'll be like a thief breaking in. For some people, when the Lord comes back, it will be like a thief who steals away their freedom and their time and their opportunity. Just as a thief is not wanted in anybody's home, neither will Christ be wanted when He returns by some people. 
For some, it will be as if their life is being broken into. It will be as if their life is being invaded. For some people, it will be as if their world is being shattered when Christ returns. And it will be. All of their accolades and all of their achievements and all of their worldly successes will be taken from them. All these things that they've spent their life pursuing and building up and treating as comforts and security and satisfaction, they'll all be ripped from them. And in that moment, they'll be reduced to rubble at the inbreaking of Christ into their lives. It will be unpleasant and it will be soul crushing. Paul actually shares this very thought in 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this for the unprepared. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. In verse 8, this is how the Lord will come. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For some, the Lord's coming will be like a thief coming. And that thief when He comes, will inflict vengeance. Vengeance. Don't ignore the language of Scripture. This is not some passive, tolerant, fluffy figure Jesus. He's inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the Gospel. Who do not believe and trust in Christ who reject Him and live according to their own wants and desires. He will be as a thief to them. And they will be the fool who is unprepared and robbed of joy and ushered into punishment. The reality is the same for for both, those who are prepared and those who are not. Verse 40 is the capstone of what Jesus is saying. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And He is either coming as, as the Master coming home, bringing joy into your life if you're prepared for Him, or He is coming as a thief, breaking into your life if you're unprepared, inflicting vengeance on those who reject Him and reject the Gospel. This is what Christ is teaching. I'm going to skip my notes. I want to finish this text because I think it's important here. Verse 41, Peter asks Him, Lord, 
Are you telling this parable for us as disciples or for everybody? Jesus does not give a direct answer. Instead, he reiterates in a slightly different way the same truth. And this time he couches it in reward and in danger. Reward for those who are are ready and the danger of not being ready when he comes back. Verse 42, he says, who, then's the fa- who, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master sets over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? What Jesus is referring to is this one singular servant who gets put in charge of everything when the master goes away. He's in charge of the estate, in charge of the resources, in charge of the possessions, and he's even in charge of the other servants. We see that similarly in Joseph's life. When he's second in command of Egypt or when he's over Potiphar's house, that same thing is happening here. And that servant was tasked with doing the master's will, doing the master's work, making decisions that benefit the master, and taking care of the servants, which which means providing care and food for them. That's what Jesus is alluding, alluding to here in verse 42. The manager who is faithful and wise gives them their portion of food at the proper time. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus says, that's what's going to please me. The the servant doing what I've asked them to do. What I expect them to do. That's what I find of them. That pleases me. Verse 44, here's their reward. He will set him over all his possessions. Those who are ready and eagerly longing for the coming of the Master, and working diligently as if the Master could come back at any moment, will have an inheritance in the land of the Master. An inheritance prepared just for them, a treasure given just to them. But Jesus focuses primarily on the danger of not being ready in this second half of the passage. It picks up in verse 45. But... If that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and then begins to do these other things, he's got a rude awakening in for him. Here's a, here's a, a servant who is also a manager, but he's not the faithful and wise manager. He's the boldly defiant manager. And his master's been gone long enough that now he's thinking to himself, my master's delayed in coming. He may not be coming back. He may be dead. He may not care. He may have lied. He may be years away from coming back. So he indulges himself. Verse 45. He mistreats the resources and possessions and property and people of the master. He beats the male and female servants. He eats and he drinks and he gets drunk. He spends his days in indulgent drunkenness. Not taking care of the master's property and servants. He does what he wants, as he wants it, when he wants it, how he wants it. And then unexpectedly, as can be imagined, verse 46, the master comes back and Jesus himself uses this language. He comes back on a day that's not expected, at an hour that the, that the indulgent servant doesn't know, and he finds him and cuts him in pieces and puts him with the unfaithful. Now for a Christian to be marked unfaithful is a very fearful thing it should strike fear in our hearts to think that we might be found by our master as unfaithful we're devoted to devoted to christ in every area because he saved us we want to be found faithful but notice even the harsh harsh language that is meant to strike fear in everybody 
believer and unbeliever alike, the, the master comes home, finds the indulgent, unprepared servant, and cuts him in pieces. It is gruesome language, harsh language, fearful language. It is not flattery. You picked a great day to come to church because this is not enjoyable language. The boldly defiant servant is cut in pieces and cast away with the unfaithful. Verse 47, there's another servant. This servant knows the master's will, but he didn't get ready or act accordingly. And so he gets a severe beating. And then in verse 48, there's another servant who didn't know the master or the master's will. And didn't know that he needed to get ready. He was still found unready. And he received a light beating. He did what deserved a beating. He didn't accept Christ. But he received a light beating. God in his justice. Seems to base punishment to a degree on knowledge. And we find these three types of people today in our world. We find the boldly defiant, indulgent servant today, don't we? There are people who mock God. They're openly and arrogantly defiant. They reject Him. They detest Him. They don't believe in Him. They decry His return as a myth, as something untrue. That He doesn't even exist. They mock people who believe in Him. They murder his children, martyr the church, ridicule Christians. Those are the boldly defiant servants, and they will be punished severely. Second Peter chapter three. I have to read this text. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm I'm trying to stir you up by sincere way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That sounds a lot like this servant, following his indulgent, sinful desires, caught up in himself and not caring a thing about what God has to say. They will say, verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're going to mock his return. It goes on and on and on and Peter finally says, They forget that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The boldly defiant will receive the severest punishment. We also find other people in the world today that match the the second servant. There are those people who know the master's will and they know that they should be ready, but they're distracted by the things of the world. I've heard the gospel. I've been to church. I live in Oklahoma. I live in the United States. The gospel has made its way to me. My ears have heard it, but my heart has not. And I've been exhorted to believe. I've been exhorted to repent. I've been exhorted to trust Christ. I've been called to believe in the gospel and trust Jesus for salvation. 
but I care too much about the things of the world. I'm distracted. I'm selfish. I'm ignorant. I'm pursuing false pleasures and false hopes. And the Lord will sneak upon them as a thief and they will receive a severe beating because they had the opportunity to hear the gospel and they still rejected. They heard and did not believe. The third individual is also found in the world today. They're the people who are not ready for the Lord's coming based on ignorance. They don't know that there's a master. They don't know that he's returning. They don't know that they need to be ready. And so they receive a lighter beating, according to Jesus. But nonetheless, they receive a beating. And that's the bottom line point. For those who are unprepared for Christ's coming, who are not born again Christians when he returns, the only thing that awaits is a beating, a punishment. And in that moment, to whatever degree it's given, it doesn't really matter, does it? You'll be taken away from Christ. This text of Scripture has gripped my heart this week, church. I read the last part of verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him who to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And I wonder how many people attend our church services and, and how many people are in our families who have heard the gospel over and over and over and over and will be found unprepared at the Lord's coming. And that bothers me. How many of you have sat and heard the gospel preached week after week after week after week after week and at the end of every sermon called to believe, called to believe, called to believe and then Christ returns and you're found unprepared? How many of us will that be? I fear that if I ask the question, are you ready? Too many of us would not have complete assurance that we are ready. And then I also fear that too many of us are caught up in the worldly distractions to care that much. I also wonder how many of us are Christians, genuinely saved, and yet live our lives in light of Christ's return. Communicate with people around us with serious urgency that Jesus is coming. And He is extending the salvation right now behold today is a favorable day today is the day of salvation second corinthians 6 be be safe today while god's arm of mercy is extended but do we realize that one day god's arm of mercy will not be extended any longer don't don't take for granted the age that we live in by god's grace the age of mercy the day of salvation. Don't, don't take that for granted because one day it, it's going to cease. And when Christ returns, it's going to be too late. And your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your son or your daughter might not have a chance to believe then. In fact, they won't. Do we live in light of Christ's return? That's the question. Are, are we ready? Well, you're unable to be ready if you have not believed. If you're not born again, you are not ready. Christ can come back now. 
Christ can come back today and you will be found unprepared. And I think I've made my case from the Bible what happens to those who are unprepared. Don't let pride get in your way today. Don't let reputation get in your way today. Don't get what people think about you getting your way today. If you know in your heart that you are unprepared for Christ's coming, come flock and be saved. The Lord's return is a certainty. More certain than your next breath. Be saved. And enjoy the assurance of salvation. And church, those of us who are saved, who are ready, we need to live in light of eternity, don't we? We need to stay dressed for action. We need to cling to our lamps and keep them burning. We need to be watchful, knowing that the Master may knock at any second, and we want to swing open the gates with complete urgency and immediacy. So live and work and relax and spend your time with others and and go on vacation and enjoy company and and eat meals and, and drive your car all in light of eternity that Christ may come back at any moment. Let's not be caught up in the abundance of possessions. Let's not be caught up in, in what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink if we look cool or, or drive the newest thing or whatever. Let's be people, verse 31, who live in light of the kingdom and the kingdom's inbreaking of this world. That liberates us from sin. That liberates us from the temptation of the enemy and the guilt that you may experience. One day the kingdom of God is going to break in to this place and we will be liberated completely. Live in light of that. Share the gospel in light of that. Take the three by three cards. Fill them out and pray fervently in light of eternity. I can't beg you enough. Scriptures are right there in front of us. We must be ready. Christ Himself exhorts us to it. Let us not be found unprepared. Lord, we are thankful that You teach us. That You taught Your disciples so many years ago and You are still teaching us today through Your living Word. It is active, God, in our hearts, our souls. It is sharp. It cuts away the sin and the foolishness and the ignorance, God. We we thank You that You care enough about us not to leave us ill-prepared. Oh Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to do what is necessary to be ready. Save the lost. Convict so deeply in the unbeliever's heart right now, Lord, please, that, that they couldn't take another step without trusting in You for salvation. That's what it means to be ready. That's the bottom line. Save our souls. And those of us who are Your children by Your grace, who have, have known Your forgiveness and Your love and Your mercy, Help us to stay dressed for action. To be diligent workers, faithful and wise. Sharing the gospel with those around us. Help us to prepare others for your coming. 
Lord, You're coming back. One day our soul will be required. One day we will stand before You and give an account. I pray we will, we will all be found with Your righteousness, Your blood covering us, Your salvation guarding our souls. Work Your Word into our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.